morning. So who, who here is from the Ludwig House Church? Raise your hands. All right. So I'm going to be counting on you guys some this morning because you've been studying 1 Samuel, right? I was told I, I had a, an extensive conference with your house church leader last night in the Bard Harriman house, and, um, and I understand that you guys have been studying that. So we, we're starting today our series on the book of Hosea, and I want to set the stage for what's going on when Hosea is writing. If you go back to Deuteronomy 26.5, what you get is sort of a statement of the identity of what it means to be an Israelite, what it means to be one of God's people. Then you shall declare before the Lord your God, my father was a wandering Aramean, and he went down to Egypt with a few people and lived there and became a great nation, powerful and numerous. But the Egyptians mistreated us and made us suffer putting us to hard labor. Then we cried out to the Lord, the God of our fathers, and the Lord heard our voice, saw our misery, our toil, and our oppression. So the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, with great terror and with miraculous signs and wonders. He brought us to this place and gave us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. So, This is the end of Deuteronomy, and Deuteronomy is at the end of Torah. And so these words are being spoken by Moses to the people of Israel as they're about to do what? Take the land. They're about to enter into the land, right? They have been wandering in the desert for 40 years because nobody would ask for directions. Actually, it's not the case. It's because of uh, rank disobedience and faithlessness. but uh, they, they were wandering the desert for 40 years, having been ransomed from slavery, which they'd been in for some 400 years. And they're about to enter into the land. And, and they're given this as a statement of, of who it is to be them, who it is to, what it is to be Israel. They're identifying with the fact that you come from a people, a nomadic people. My father was a wandering Aramean. And, and you come from nothing. My father was a wandering Aramean, and he went down into Egypt with a few people. Egypt was, of course, one of the great superpowers of the day. So here's this nobody basically showing up in New York. Well, he lived there, and he became a great nation, powerful and numerous. And even though we were mistreated, God redeemed us, God saved us, God rescued us, God got us out of there. And so when... When you get to things like the Ten Commandments, what's often forgotten, because you usually think about it as sort of a list of do's and don'ts, but what's often forgotten when when you think about that is the preamble to the Ten Commandments, right? The first commandment is, you shall have no other gods before me, but on what grounds does God make that command? I am Yahweh, your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. That is to say, you're in relationship with me, not, as we read elsewhere, not because you guys are all that special. In fact, I picked you because you are the most hopeless, stubborn, 
ignorant SOBs that are out there, I picked you so that there would be no question who's responsible for your success. I am Yahweh, your God. I brought you out of Egypt. I brought you out of the land of slavery. And so because of this, you shall have no other gods before me. And in the great prayer of this faith that we get in Deuteronomy, the Shema, which Ron preached on some months ago, Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one, and you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your strength. This is what it means to be one of God's people to be in a unique relationship with him as a savior, as a deliverer, as a redeemer, and to be in a relationship of love, to be in a relationship of devotion. The opposite of this sort of thing is what? The opposite of worship of the one true God, the opposite of exclusive devotion to him is what? Idolatry which is the problem, as Hosea starts, and which has been a problem for some time. Those of you in the Ludwig House Church, after this episode in Deuteronomy, when the people go to take the land, because you guys did, uh, what, Joshua and Judges before 1 Samuel, didn't you? We did Joshua. You did Joshua. And, did like a summary and you did a summary. Judges is, yeah, Judges is pretty depressing. So what, what happens? I mean, give me the... Give me the, the Back of the envelope, elevator speech version of what happens in Joshua and Judges. Yeah, yeah. In what ways do they screw things up? Mark, Mark wants to go to elucidate the ways in which this screwing up happened. So, uh, for one, they they don't do things God commands to do. Right. And the ark is the thing Noah used? What's that? The ark, you mean the thing with the animals on it? <laughs> or, sorry, the... No, the other ark, yes. You mean the ark of the covenant with, with the, the Nazis and the, yeah, Indiana Jones, yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, they do what they shouldn't do, and they don't do what God tells them to do, right? Ron, did you want to contribute to this? Uh, I, thought, I thought you were going to add. Yeah, they, they did what was wrong, and then they repented, and God rescued Yeah, you do get this depressing cycle through that whole narrative of, you know, basically in that day, people did whatever they wanted to do, and they got themselves in deep yogurt, and they cried out to God, and God delivered them, and he saved them. And then they got comfortable and fat and happy, and then they got themselves in trouble again. And then they cried out to the Lord. And he read. But it happens like again and again and again. And it, it is, as Kendall said, really depressing. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah.
it's like when, when the doctor tells you, you take your whole course of antibiotics, don't stop when you when it looks like everything's the swelling's gone down. Same kind of thing. Like, oh, I guess we're okay now. We can just flush the rest. No, no, that's not the case. So you had this. You had judges. God placed judges over the people. I know you remember fondly when we did our Old Testament series. This was the Amphictyony. This bless you. Um, uh, Rob is still allergic to, to that word. Um, this is the time when you had you had judges that were that were functioning in you know in a judicial sense and also sort of as governors and sometimes as military leaders. Um, but but uh, the, the Israeli society Israelite society was was kind of spread out and dispersed. Um, and eventually, people wanted to have what? A king. Why did they want a king? To be just like everyone else, right? Everybody else has a king, so we want a king. And they got a king. What king did they get? Saul. Saul turned out to be crazy. Uh, and then Saul was succeeded by David. David... Uh, Craven, adulterous, murderous, um, fairly sane most of the time. And then David is succeeded by whom? By Solomon, after a bit of palace intrigue. And so in 1 Kings 3, where we pick up the story here, Solomon, we read, made an alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and married his daughter. And he brought her to the city of David until he finished building his palace and the temple of the Lord in that order. And the wall around Jerusalem. The people, however, were still sacrificing at the high places because a temple had not yet been built for the name of the Lord. Solomon showed his love for the Lord by walking according to the statutes of his father David, except that he offered sacrifices and burned incense in the high places. The king went to Gibeon to offer sacrifices, for that was the most important high place, and Solomon offered a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon during the night in a dream, and God said, ask for whatever you want me to give you. And Solomon answered, you've shown great kindness to your servant, my father David, because he was faithful to you and righteous and upright in heart. You continued this great kindness to him and have given him a son to sit on his throne this very day. Now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of my father David, but I'm only a little child. I don't know how to carry out my duties. Your servant is here among the people you have chosen, a great people, too numerous to count or number. So give your servant a discerning heart to govern your people and to distinguish between right and wrong, for who is able to govern this great people of yours? And the Lord was pleased that Solomon had asked for this. So God said to him, since you've asked for this, not for long life or wealth for yourself, you haven't asked for the death of your enemies, but for discernment in administering justice. I will do what you've asked. I will give you a wise and discerning heart so that there will never have been anyone like you, nor will there ever be. Moreover, I will give you what you have not asked for, both riches and honor, so that in your lifetime you will have no equal among kings. And if you walk in my ways and obey my statutes and commands as David your father did, I'll give you a long life. And then Solomon awoke, and he realized it had been a dream. He returned to Jerusalem, stood before the Ark of the Lord's Covenant, then sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, and then he gave a feast for all his court. Back to Deuteronomy again, the background to what we need to notice in this story. Back in chapter 12, 
Moses tells the people, these are the decrees and laws you must be careful to follow in the land that Yahweh, the God of your fathers, has given you to possess. As long as you live in the land, destroy completely all the places on the high mountains and on the hills and under every spreading tree where the nations you're dispossessing worship their gods. Break down their altars, smash their sacred stones, and burn their Asherah poles in the fire. Cut down the idols of their gods and wipe out their names from those places. You must not worship Yahweh, your God, in this way. You shall not worship Yahweh, your God, in their way. You shall not worship Yahweh, your God, in any way other than the way I have told you to worship Yahweh, your God. If you flip back to Exodus, you get literally dozens of chapters on establishing the tabernacle and on fashioning the instruments for it. There are clear instructions on how you're supposed to do this, right? Aaron's sons, Nadav and Avihu, decide that they want to improvise a little bit. What happens to them? Yes. Yeah, fire consumes them. God is not interested in jazz musicians in the liturgy of his temple. He does not want you improvising. He wants you to play what's on the page. No, you are to seek the place that Yahweh your God will choose from among all your tribes to put his name there for his dwelling. To that place you must go. There bring your burnt offerings and sacrifices, your tithes and special gifts, what you vowed to give and your freewill offerings and the firstborn of your herds and flocks. There in the presence of Yahweh your God, you and your families shall eat and shall rejoice in everything you put your hand to, because Yahweh your God has blessed you. I mean, they're about to enter the land, and yes, God has given them instructions for building basically a, a portable worship space, and, and, that's, and, and he's given them instructions on how to use this, but he's also saying at some point I'm going to pick one place where this is going to stay. It's going to stay portable, it's going to be moving for a while, but eventually there's going to be one place you're going to go. You're not to do as we do here today, everyone as he sees fit, because you haven't yet reached the resting place in the inheritance Yahweh your God is giving you, but you'll cross the Jordan and you'll settle in the land that Yahweh your God is giving you as an inheritance, and he'll give you rest from all your enemies around you so that you'll live in safety. And then to the place that Yahweh your God will choose as a dwelling for his name there, you are to bring everything I command you, your burnt offerings and sacrifices, your tithes and special gifts, all the choice possessions that you vowed to Yahweh. And there rejoice before Yahweh your God, you, your sons, your daughters, your men servants and maidservants, the Levites from your towns who have no allotment or inheritance of their own. Be careful not to sacrifice your burnt offerings anywhere you please. Offer them only at the place Yahweh will choose in one of your tribes, and there observe everything I command you. Now, it's subtle here, but I'm detecting a theme that you're not supposed to worship on the high places, right? I mean, this may be something that, that takes great wisdom and skill to notice in every other verse. The people around you are worshiping in their way. They go up to the high places, they worship, they make sacrifices to their gods, I don't want you to do it like that, God says. I don't want you to do it like that. I'm going to pick a place. Until I pick a place, you can do this, this tabernacle thing where the ark is. But I don't want you going up to the high places to worship. In fact, when you take the land, what does he, want you, what, what does he say I want you to do with those places? 
destroy them. And this is, by the way, this is not like what the Taliban and ISIS do where they take thousands and thousands of year old artifacts where people are not actually worshiping. These are, you know, like archaeological sites. These are, these are active sites of pagan worship. God is saying, I don't want any of that to be going on in the land. I don't want you to be enticed by that. I don't want you to be drawn to that. And what's more, God says a few chapters later in Deuteronomy 17, when he, he says, you know, when you enter the land that Yahweh your God is giving you and you've taken possession of it and settled it, and like idiots, you say, let us set a king over us like all the nations around us, be sure to appoint over you the king that Yahweh your God chooses. He must be from among your own brothers, so don't place a foreigner over you, one who isn't a brother Israelite. The king, moreover, must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself, must not make the people return to Egypt to get more of them. For Yahweh has told you, you are not to go back that way again. He must not take many wives, or his heart will be led astray, and he must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. When he takes the throne of his kingdom, he is to write for himself on a scroll, a copy of this law, taken from that of the priests who are Levites. It's to be with him, and he's to read it all the days of his life so that he may learn to revere Yahweh as God and follow carefully all the words of this law and these decrees, not consider himself better than his brothers, and turn from the law to the right or to the left, and he and his descendants will reign a long time over his kingdom in Israel. So let's go back to that scene in 1 Kings 3 with Solomon, and let's see what's going on. 1 Kings chapter 3, Solomon made an alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and married his daughter. Why might Solomon have made an alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt? When, when did you mumbling? What? Yeah, what did he say? Don't go back to Egypt to try to get stuff like horses from them. And here Solomon has made an alliance with Egypt. Presumably he's getting more than just the daughter of Pharaoh. He brought her to the city of David, so that's good. So he's you know, in this place where he's supposed to be. But then what do we find out? The people were still sacrificing at the high places. Solomon showed his love for Yahweh by walking according to the statutes of his father David, except that, what did he do? He offered sacrifices and he burned incense on the high places. And we read that he went to Gibeon to offer sacrifices. That was the most important high place. So Solomon, being the most important guy, is, of course, going to go to the most important high place. He offered a 1,000 burnt offerings on that altar, which is kind of gauche. But Solomon was all about the bling. And at Gibeon, Yahweh appeared to Solomon during the night in a dream. And God said, ask for whatever you want. So what we see here is a couple things. One, we see that things are not as they ought to be. Solomon, the king of Israel, is worshiping along with the rest of Israel on the high places. He's offering sacrifices on the most prominent, the most important of all the high places. And we see that nevertheless, God is willing to meet him there. And when Solomon prays for wisdom, God says, that's, that's a good thing to ask for. I'm going to give you that, and I'm also going to give you wealth, I'm going to give you power, going to give you security. And then what happened? Solomon awoke and he realized it had been a dream. So then what does he do? He returned to Jerusalem. And he stood before the ark of the Lord's covenant. 
and he sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings there. This is basically the high point of the story. I'm sorry to say, right? We're, we're somewhere around 1,000 B.C. Um, this is about as good as it's going to get. Solomon's powerful. As we're going to see, Solomon becomes more and more powerful, more and more wealthy. He also becomes more and more of a tyrant, exacting more and more in taxation, more and more in forced labor. And we find out, skipping ahead a bit to chapter 11, Solomon loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughter. Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites, and they were from nations about which Yahweh had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them, because they will surely turn your hearts after their gods. Nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love. It doesn't just say that he made treaties and he had these marriages uh, of diplomatic convenience. He actually loved them. He had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines, and his wives led him astray. Solomon grew old. His wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart wasn't fully devoted to Yahweh as God as the heart of David his father had been. He followed Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Moloch, the detestable gods of the Ammonites. So Solomon did evil in the eyes of Yahweh. He didn't follow Yahweh completely as David his father had done. And on a high hill east of Jerusalem, Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the detestable god of Moab, and for Moloch, the detestable god of the Ammonites. And he did the same for all of his foreign wives who burned incense and offered sacrifice to their gods. So this is the end of the story for Solomon. He began asking for great wisdom, and he ends a fool, led astray by all the things that he had been warned against. And the problem is not merely with Solomon. The problem is not merely with the king. The whole system is really rotten by this point. Because we read in in chapter 12 that after Solomon's death, Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who was a leader in the northern part of the kingdom, he returned from Egypt. They sent for Jeroboam, who was a leader in the southern part. He and the whole assembly of Israel went to Rehoboam and said to him, Rehoboam was sort of the, the son of Solomon, the, his, his successor, said, your father put a heavy yoke on us, but now lighten the harsh labor and the heavy yoke he put on us and we'll serve you. Rehoboam said, all right, go away for three days, let me think about it. He checked with his elders. The elders said, that's probably not a bad idea considering tax rates are quite high Your dad could get away with a lot that, frankly, you can't get away with because you don't have the kind of relational capital he had uh, and people aren't afraid of you like they were afraid of him. You don't have inertia. It would make sense if you you did this. And then Rehoboam asked his posse, the young bucks that he hung out with, and they said, ha, you should tell him, "You, you like that? I'll make it worse for you. Well, guess which one he listens to. 
Three days later, Jeroboam and the people returned to Rehoboam as the king had said, come back to me in three days. And the king answered the people harshly, rejecting the advice given him by the elders. He followed the advice of the young men and said, my father made your yoke heavy. Guess what? I'm going to make it even heavier. My father scourged you with whips. I will scourge you with scorpions. He did not wisely follow their advice to say, my little finger is thicker than my father's waist, which would have been tacky. But otherwise, yeah, he didn't listen to the people. And when all Israel saw that the king refused to listen to them, they answered the king, what share do we have in David? What part in Jesse's son? To your tents, O Israel, look after your own house, O David. So the Israelites went home. This is the split between the northern and the southern kingdoms. The northern kingdom known from here is Israel. The southern kingdom known from here in the story is Judah. God's nation, God's one nation, his one people that was supposed to be together worshiping him as one, they're divided. As the story goes on, we find Jeroboam fortified Shechem up in the hill country of Ephraim, and he lived there. And he thought to himself, you know, the kingdom is likely going to revert to the house of David if the people go up to the temple in Jerusalem to do their sacrifices. I mean, eventually, they're going to get used to that, and their allegiance is ultimately going to go to the guy who lives in in Jerusalem, the the king there, the king of of Judah, the southern kingdom. And when that happens, then they're going to kill me. So I'd like to avoid this. So after seeking advice, perhaps from the same young guys who had the great advice on the tax issue, the king made two golden calves. Now, where have we seen golden calves before? In the desert, right? You know, Aaron melted down everybody's jewelry while Moses is up on the, on the mountain. Charlton Heston comes down, he gets angry, he sees the only G-rated orgy in history that Cecil B. DeMille put together, he throws down these tablets. So he not only has one, he makes two golden calves, and he says to the people, eh, it's too much for you to go to Jerusalem. Here are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt, which is basically exactly the same thing Aaron said, and that did not end very well. He set one of them up in Bethel, the other one in Dan, so he would have convenience for the people. And as this thing became a sin, the people went even as far as Dan to worship the one there. He built shrines on high places and appointed priests from all sorts of people, even though they were not Levites, right? That was the deal in Torah. There's only one place you're supposed to get priests, right? From the sons of Levi. Only Levites are supposed to be priests. He says, no, I'm going to get them wherever I want to. So he instituted this festival for the Israelites. He went up to the altar to make offerings. Jeroboam, son of Nebat, he basically is the first king of Israel of the northern kingdom, and he sets the tone for everybody who follows. Basically, for the next 300 plus years, when you read the story of the kings of Israel, none of them is good. The only one who's kind of good is, is one, Jehu, who, go, who, who institutes a, a sort of a, a renewal movement, but he also did evil in the, side, in the sight of the Lord. This is the, the refrain that we get 
over and over and over. And just as Judges is depressing in that way, First and Second Kings is pretty depressing. Each one of them, he did evil in the sight of the Lord. So when Hosea shows up, when the word of the Lord comes to Hosea, son of Beeri, during the reigns of Isaiah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, the kings of Judah, and during the reign of Jeroboam, the son of Jehoash, king of Israel, this is Jeroboam the second. Obviously, at some point, somebody thought Jeroboam, who had established these high places, was somebody you wanted to name your kid after. And Hosea starts his ministry during the reign of Jeroboam, probably toward the very tail end of it. Here's what happens, just real quick, after Jeroboam the second, and I'm sure you all have this uh, fondly memorized along with the, all the presidents, but the, the kings of Israel, following Jeroboam, this is in 2 Kings chapter 15, I have it memorized too, I'm just you know, pretending to look at my notes here. Uh, the 38th year of Azariah, king of Judah, you get Zechariah, the son of Jeroboam. Jeroboam reigns for 41 years. Zechariah becomes king of Israel, and he reigned for six months. Zechariah did not hold the throne very long. He did evil in the eyes of Yahweh, as his fathers had done. And then Shalom, the son of Jabesh, conspired against Zechariah, attacked him in front of the people, assassinated him, and then took his throne. Shalom only made it a month. Because Menachem assassinated him. Now Menachem, starting out from Tirzah, attacked Tifsa, everyone in the city and its vicinity, because they refused to open their gates. He sacked Tifsa, and he ripped open all the pregnant women. So Menachem was a real prince. He makes it ten years. Menachem is succeeded by Pekahiah, but by this point... Things are starting to get really bad in terms of international relations. Menachem basically tries to buy off the king of Assyria. So instead of having uh, his kingdom fall, he buys him off, gives him a thousand talents of silver, makes a special assessment on the wealthy in the land. I bought off the king of Assyria for a while, but then Pekahiah lasts two years, Pekah for ten. And then finally you get to King Hosea, the very last king of Israel. He did evil in the eyes of Yahweh. Big surprise. And at this point, things are completely falling apart in the diplomatic realm. Hosea is trying to uh, play off Egypt against Assyria. Assyria, having a strong intelligence network, learns that Hosea is trying to do this and finally brings the boot down. And what happens? The king of Assyria invaded the entire land, marched against Samaria, and he laid siege to it for three years. In the ninth year of Hosea, the king of Assyria captured Samaria and deported the Israelites to Assyria. And then the Assyrians did what the Assyrians always did, which was a very effective way in keeping conquered people from rising back up, is that he distributed them. He took people from all the different nations that he had conquered and he spread them out to other nations so that nobody would have any sense of national identity because everybody would be mixed up throughout all the areas that he had conquered. And that's 
the end of the story for the ten tribes of the northern kingdom. And it's during this period of accelerating decline following Jeroboam that Hosea is writing. That Hosea, who is a northern prophet, a prophet of the northern kingdom, most of the prophets that we've discussed in the past, I know you fondly remember the Ezekiel series. He was from Judah. We've spent time with Isaiah and Jeremiah. Also, Isaiah is northern. But, but the point is that Hosea is a prophet located in the northern kingdom, speaking to the northern kingdom. And he's speaking at a certain time. There are things that we find in Scripture that are sort of universal. Like you read stuff in the Proverbs or things in the Psalms. The Song of Songs, in a way, could, could be written any time. I mean, it's, it's a book about the, the glory of, of physical love between a man and a woman. And it's not situated in a particular time. But, but these histories, these stories, and the prophets who are writing are writing in specific times about specific people in specific situations. And quite often, what's going on among these specific people in these specific times and in these specific situations is that the people are behaving badly. Abraham Joshua Heschel, the great Jewish philosopher, said that history is where God is defied. History is where justice suffers defeats. God's purpose is neither clearly apparent nor translatable into rational categories of order and design. There are only moments in which it's revealed. See, God's power in history doesn't endure as a process. It occurs at extraordinary events. There's a divine involvement and concern, involvement in what's done for that which is, but even where his power is absent, his concern is present. Even when you don't see God acting to make things better, he is not ignorant, he's not unaware, and he's not unconcerned. There was a moment when God looked at the universe made by him and said, it is good, but there was no moment in which God could have looked at history made by man and said, it is good. The point is that much in the same way that God encountered Solomon in a dream when he fell asleep after sacrificing at the high places, what we find is God speaking to his people through Hosea when they are reaping the natural effects of their disobedience, their faithlessness. What we find is God speaking in through his prophet at a particular point in the history of his people, to his people, the words that they need to hear. As we're going to see as we go through Hosea this fall, he has some hard things to say to his people. He uses some vivid language to make it clear to them just how they have treated him. 
But even in the midst of the message of just punishment that he has for them, as we'll see, he also has a message of redemption, a message of salvation, a message of deliverance. And it's almost too much to bear. You sort of get the sense, as we'll see through Hosea, that Hosea himself doesn't really understand how God can have this message both of deliverance and of condemnation. So it's the mind and heart of this unique prophet we will be swimming over the fall. Will you pray with me? Lord God, we thank you for your prophet Hosea. We thank you for your word and for all the artifacts of archaeology and history that enable us to understand what was going on when he was writing. We thank you, Father, for the opportunity that we have here to enter into the world, into the mind, into the heart of this, your prophet. We pray that as we read, as we meditate on what we hear and what we see, we pray that our hearts too would be broken, that we would know your word both of correction and of redemption. We ask this through Christ our Lord. Amen.